Okay, I'm going to start now by describing a couple of situations and just inviting you to think about how you might behave. So off we go. Imagine that you're in charge of the petty cash at the place where you work, but somebody else goes to the bank to get the money. And one day your boss asks you if the extra petty cash was sufficient. And you think, what extra petty cash? And you realize that your other worker, your colleague, who collects the petty cash has been pocketing the extra money. Do you tell your boss? Do you tell the other worker? Or do you do nothing and just see what happens? The question really there is who are you loyal to, your boss or your colleague? Here's another one. A friend confesses to you that they've committed a very serious crime. Uh, they're troubled by remorse and shame, and they feel that you're the only person they know who they can trust to keep a confidence. But a couple of days later, you discover that an innocent person has been arrested and accused of the crime. So do you tell the police? Do you tell your friend and encourage them to own up? Uh, do you do nothing because you shouldn't betray a confidence? Again, you're in a bit of a problem there. You can't quite do the right thing. Um, and these are examples of what we call moral dilemmas. They're situations when it's really difficult to see what's quite the right thing to do. Um, and they can be fairly dramatic, like the story of the criminal who confesses. But they can be fairly everyday sort of things as well. You're in one of the few shops in London that actually still takes cash. And you notice that they've given you too much change. Or you discover that a friend of yours is being unfaithful to their partner. Or maybe last night after the football, you were with a friend drowning your sorrows and you realized that your friend had had far too much to drink and was going to drive home and refused to give you the car keys. What do you do then? Do you grab the keys off them? Do you stand in front of the car? We're dealing with all sorts of problems here, different conflicts between um, different ethical principles. And uh, you know, th this can be quite tricky. Do you tell somebody the truth or are you kind? Uh, do you believe in justice or do you believe in mercy? Um, or maybe you think that if you do something a little bit naughty in the short run, then it might lead to a better outcome in the long run. Most of the Buddhist literature and ethics I've seen doesn't give us an awful lot of help with this. Um, what they tend to do is to list the five precepts and tell you what they all mean and leave the rest up to you. And one big plus about Buddhist ethical literature is that it does encourage us to think for ourselves. Uh, it doesn't uh, give us these sort of hard and fast rules of this is exactly how you will behave in every situation. So it does treat us as intelligent people. It doesn't always give us that much help in using that intelligence in an ethical way. If you join the order, um, you get an extra 10 precepts. Sorry, you don't get an extra 10 precepts, you get an extra five that makes 10, apologies for my arithmetic. 
And the extra one's mostly to do with how we speak to people. Um, but it still can be quite tough to get help in really applying this in practice. Um, there are lots of times in situations where I think, well, shall I say something or shall I just shut up? The way we teach ethics in this country is often through scenarios. I've given you a few examples already quite, um, quite quickly. And they give you a little story. And then they say, well, that's a situation. What would you do? And they're called thought experiments. And the reason they're called thought experiments is because you don't actually have to do them. Uh, you just have to think about them and say what you do and say why. Now, one of the most common scenarios that gets used as a thought experiment is called the trolley problem. And if you find this remotely interesting, you can look up the trolley problem on Wikipedia and see a nice long article on it. Uh, but don't worry, I'm not going to go into great detail about it. It's a nice, easy problem in its simplest form. Uh, you've got to imagine that you're standing next to the points on a railway track. And you look up and you see a runaway trolley hurtling down the tracks in your general direction. And ahead of the trolley, on the track in front of you, you can see five people tied up on the track and unable to move. A bit like in one of those old silent movies. And you realize that if you pull the lever on the points, the trolley is going to move on to a different track and those five people will be saved. But then you have a look at the other track and you see there's one person stuck, maybe tied up on the side track. So you've got a real problem here. Uh, you could do nothing and let five people die, or you could pull the lever and let one person die. What you can't do is avoid causing somebody a rather unpleasant end. Now, there's lots of ways of varying this problem. Uh, and it's actually quite fun to sort of tinker around with this sort of problem. And um, bearing in mind, as I said, that nobody's actually going to be hurt. You just have to use your imagination. So let's imagine, you know, it's easy to say, well, it's better to have one person than die than to have five people die. But what if that one person is an Oxford University scientist who's working on a new COVID booster vaccine, which is going to be incredibly cheap and incredibly easy to make and distribute all around the world. Well, the five people you notice are members of an organized crime group that's involved in drug smuggling and people trafficking. Uh, are you entitled to take that sort of moral decision there? Um, or alternatively, what if the five people are Oxford University scientists working on the COVID vaccine, but the one person on the other track is your mother? <laughs> Where does your loyalty lie with society and with your family? 
Now, what you can't do in a situation like this, what you can't do in one of these thought experiments is to come up with an answer that's purely straightforwardly, perfectly ethical. Now, I do agree that it's probably extremely unlikely that you're going to find yourself in a situation exactly like the trolley problem. Even if you do work on the railways and one of our mitras does. And, but the idea of this sort of problem is to just to get you thinking, uh, to get you thinking um, about ethics so that if you do find yourself in a tight corner like this, um, in, in, in an ethically tight corner, if you like, um, that you've at least got some sort of preparation. I suppose in some ways it's rather like practicing penalties before you have to kick them. And it's just worth reminding you as well as to why Buddhists think that all this matters. You might say something like, well, I don't work on the railways. Um, it's a silly problem. It's not going to happen to me. Or you might go back to one of the earlier dilemmas that I mentioned and say, well, what does it matter if they give me too much change in a shop and I pocket the money? Nobody's going to know about it. The problem with all this and the problem with ethics is a very simple Buddhist principle, which is that actions have consequences. We use the word karma to describe this, but I'm not going to get too technical with the vocabulary. But all our deliberate actions have some sort of consequences, some sort of outcomes for us. It's true that if you do pocket the extra change in a shop, you might get caught. And if you don't get caught, and you keep on pocketing extra change when you get it in shops, it may become a habit. People start then to think you're rather a sly person. They might find you a bit greedy or untrustworthy and your friends fall away. People don't want to do business with you. They maybe don't want to lend you money. Now, fortunately, in the Buddhist scriptures, there is a kind of Buddhist version of the trolley problem uh, with some ideas about how to handle it. Um, the story of the compassionate ship's captain turns up in a book which you can look at if you can read mirror writing. Uh, it's called The Skill in Means Sutra. Um, sorry, I, ca I, I can't change this round and stuff. But it's called the Skill in Mean Sutra. It's quite easy to find online. And the Skill in Mean Sutra um, is an early Mahayana Sutra. And what happens is the Buddha is sitting in a place called the Jetta Grove in Shravasti, surrounded by 8,000 monks, 16,000 bodhisattvas, and 100,000 ordinary people. There's quite a throng there. And I've been to the Jetta Grove at Shravasti. It's about the size of Cherry Tree Woods, which is my local park. Um, so they've really crammed these people in. And a bodhisattva called Janotara asks the Buddha a series of questions. And the Buddha tells Janotara a series of little stories. 
And the story we're going to look at is the longest and possibly the most important of all these stories. So this is the story of the compassionate ship's captain. So here we go. This is a little story told by the Buddha. And like all stories, one, it starts once upon a time, long time ago, 500 merchants were sailing the seas in search of wealth. And they're all on the same ship. And amongst the company of these 500 merchants was a hardened criminal who was planning to kill them all after they'd done their business and steal all their possessions. And the merchants did the business and the criminal was getting ready to murder all 500. Now the ship's captain was a man whose name was greatly compassionate. And his name gives you a bit of a clue as to what kind of guy he was. I mean, you know, if you read a children's story like 101 Dalmatians and there's a character called Cruella de Vil, you've got a pretty good idea of what she's going to turn out to be like. And so when the ship's captain's called greatly compassionate, you know he's a good bloke. And the ship's captain learns what the criminal is planning. He's actually told by the local gods. And the gods told him the merchants are actually bodhisattvas getting close to enlightenment. And if the criminal kills them, he's going to go to hell for a very, very long time. And the captain spends a week thinking about this. It's a long sea voyage. He's got a week to think about what to do about it. And he decides that the only way he can possibly stop this criminal is to kill him. He, just, he thinks about telling the merchants what to do, what's going on. But then he thinks, well, the merchants will kill him and then they'll go to hell. He realizes that if he kills the criminal, he's going to spend 100,000 eons in hell. That's a pretty long time. But he thinks, well, I can cope with that. I can handle that. And so the story ends where the captain gets a spear and kills the criminal. And the ship docks and the merchants go on their way. And if you're worried about the criminal, apparently he's reborn in a heavenly realm. Now, that's the end of the story that the Buddha tells Yanotara. But the Buddha then pipes up and says something else that's really important. The Buddha says, well, actually, I was that ship's captain. That was me. And it's a kind of story we call a Jataka. It's a, a kind of legendary story of things that happened to the Buddha in previous lives. And the Buddha says, well, that was me. I did that. And he says, because I did that, my enlightenment was delayed by a hundred thousand eons. And um, the chapter ends here. But something else happens then. Um, the Buddha 
in this story clearly has some quite remarkable supernatural powers because the Buddha realizes that in Shravasti, which is the place where everybody is, there are 20 people who are nearly enlightened, but unfortunately there are also 20 criminals and each criminal wants to kill one of the, uh, one of the good people. And they don't just want to kill them, they're actively doing something about it. And the Buddha brings all 20 criminals and 20 victims in front of him, in front of the whole crowd. And at this point, a great big thorn shoots up from the earth. And Nyanotra, that's the Bodhisattva who's listening to the stories, the Bodhisattva grabs hold of the thorn and tries to yank it out of the earth. And apparently Yarnotra tugs so hard at the thorn that the whole universe shakes. So obviously Yarnotra is a pretty handy sort of bloke, but he fails to get the thorn out of the earth. And then the Buddha steps forward and treads on the thorn. And the thorn goes straight into his foot. It probably hurts. And Ananda's best friend, uh, sorry, the Buddha's best friend, Ananda, asks him, what's going on? What's, what's happening here? And the Buddha says, this has happened because many, many lifetimes ago, I killed a criminal with a spear. And the 20 criminals that are in front of the Buddha see what's happened and they repent. They confess their evil intentions, give up and go home. And they realize um, that what the Buddha has been doing is he's been trying to make a point. He's been trying to demonstrate something. And what he's been trying to demonstrate is that you can't escape the consequences of your actions no matter who you are. So that's the story. And I'm just going to try and wrap up now with a few points about what does this say? Um, you know, you might say, well, what is the point of all this? What can we learn from this little tale about the compassionate ship's captain? What does he do? that we might learn from. Well, the first thing he does is he identifies a problem. And it's a problem that can't be very easily resolved. Um, and the second thing he does, which I think is quite important, is that he thinks very carefully about it. In the story, he takes a whole week. He's not influenced by prejudice. He doesn't rush to some sort of hasty, rapid conclusion. He realizes the seriousness of what he's got to deal with. And he spends a whole week thinking about it. This is where it's different from the trolley problem, because with the trolley problem, you've got the trolley hurtling straight at you. You've got to think quick. And, but this to me is why it matters to think about ethical issues, 
when we don't have to think in a hurry. We're not in a tight corner. Um, and it means that if we do suddenly find ourselves in an awkward situation, it's not um, going to catch us out. Um, it's why, for example, that doctors and nurses are taught ethics as part of their training for qualification. Um, it's a good idea to think about tricky situations before they actually happen to us. Now, the third thing that the captain does is he accepts responsibility for his own actions. He's not one of these people who blames other, blames somebody else. He doesn't even blame the criminal on board the ship. He's not one of these people who says, I couldn't help it. I had to do it. He made me do it. He takes the responsibility fair and square. And I would call this the Gareth Southgate approach. Is, you know, there's a lot to admire about Gareth Southgate, but the fact that after yesterday's game, he stood up and said, don't blame the players, blame me. I admire him for that enormously. He said, I made the decisions, they carried them out, blame me. And I've got a lot of time for people who will just take that responsibility for their own actions. The fourth thing that the captain does is he acts to minimize harm. He can't come up with a perfect outcome. He's got to do something. And so he does what he has to do with a spear. Quite why the story says he uses a spear, I don't really know. Um, I'm not quite sure what they had on board ship in those days. Maybe that was all he could find. Um, he can't actually be sure of the outcome of his actions, but he's weighed up the evidence and he just does the best he can. And they do say the criminals reborn in paradise, which I suppose is some consolation. Um, and the fifth thing that happens then is the captain accepts the consequences of his actions. He said that he's willing to go to hell for a hundred thousand eons. So he's a pretty tough character. It looks from the story as if he doesn't actually have to do that. Uh, the consequences of his actions aren't quite as bad as he thinks they might be. He delays his enlightenment for a hundred thousand eons. And he probably spends most of that time pottering about in samsara, enjoying the same sort of ups and downs that we do. And because he's going to become the Buddha, probably practicing meditating very hard indeed. Finally, one other thing that he does. He sets an example. People don't always pay a huge amount of attention to what other people say. And while I was preparing this talk, I honestly sort of wondered, how much of this will you remember after breakfast tomorrow morning? And I'd like to think you'd remember some of it. But people often don't hugely remember the detail of Dharma talks like this one. 
I've often had conversations with people on a retreat or after a, an event like this, and they'll say, oh, thingamabob gave a fantastic talk. And um, the other person will say, oh, gosh, what was it about? Oh, something to do with Buddhism. I'm not quite sure now, but it was great at the time. But they do remember. So people don't always remember what you say, but they do remember what you do. And they do remember how they make you feel. So when the Buddha stands on that thorn, the criminals get the message. They, you know, talking to them probably isn't going to work, but showing them what's likely to happen if they go ahead is something that does work. And of course, not only do the killers change their ways, but the enormous crowd of beings gets the message as well. So that's pretty much where I wrap up with this. It looks like somebody's put something in the chat about this, but if you think this is at all interesting, and if you're able to use Google, and if you can remember this after breakfast tomorrow morning, um, then pop compassionate ship's captain into Google and something will come up that will remind you of this. Um, I realize that people come along to these events, not just so they can listen to somebody talking, but also to have a bit of human connection, a bit of conversation, a bit of interaction, which we've all been starved of over lockdown. So after the break and announcements, um, I'm going, well, I was going to say, I'm going to put you into breakout rooms, but that's not true. Somebody else is going to do it for me. And I'd just like you to think about a couple of questions. I mean, once you're in breakout rooms, you can really talk about what you want to, but I'm going to suggest a couple of things and I'll remind you again after the break. Thing one is to ask, have you ever found yourself in a situation like this? A situation where you're in a dilemma where you've got really to choose the lesser of two evils. And if you were in a situation where you had to choose the lesser of two evils, what did you do about it? And thirdly, I'm just thinking of, I think you have an old song by Meatloaf. Um, I'm a bit of a fan of his. And uh, there's a lovely song of his which goes, I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Is there anything that you think you would never think is the right thing to do? Is there anything you would say is always wrong? Anyway, thank you for listening to me. I hope you've got something out of what I said. And I'm now going to pass over to one of my talented friends on the team for a little break and some announcements. Thanks, everybody.